We cannot look to technology in the classroom as the solution to the problems we would like to fix. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, I am holding in my hands the book that you wrote, and it took you decades to write this book. It's called However Imperfectly, Lessons Learned from 30 Years of Teaching and Other Articles. So this is just a compilation of all the articles that you were forced to write over the years. And it goes I, way back. It does. It goes, I think, back the very to 99, I think, or yeah, even before. Yeah, the very first article that you wrote was on the six traits writing assessment, and it was in 1998. 98, yeah. And of course, we now know that six trait writing assessment model is now six plus one. Right. Is it six plus two yet? No, no, it's okay. still six plus one. Right. Yeah, I had cause to revisit the six-trait question just recently. Oh, interesting. We can do a podcast on that sometime. But why are you holding this book Well, I, well that finally I wrote after <laughs> years and years of people saying, did you write a book? Yes. Well, it was funny because when we first estimated how many pages this book would be, we just did a graphic representation of what we thought the book would look like. And it's actually twice as thick as what we... I wasn't pleased. (laughs) Could have had two books out of one if we just did volume one and two. True. It is true. So, But these are other articles that you've written over the years. And the topic that I would like to have a conversation with you about is actually maybe loosely based on one of these articles. And this was one that you wrote in 2017 called low-tech teaching with high-end results. Now, you wrote this article, what is that, three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. So technology, of course, has not grown at all in the last four years. No, it's actually Depends more, on where you look. more prevalent. And, you know, we're having a new generation of teachers and educators who are, who have so many tools available to them today that they didn't have four years ago, let alone, you know, 24 years ago when you and I were still teaching. So, Well, I think I, you know, the seed of that article was mm-hmm. planted in my mind years before uh, when I read a book, The Flickering Mind, mm-hmm. The False Promise of Technology in the Classroom by um, Oppenheimer, I mm-hmm. believe. Mm-hmm. And that book was just fascinating because, you know, he's a Wall Street Journal reporter. He traveled the country, spent a year collecting up information and visiting various schools. And essentially, he found out, you know, this was over 10 years ago. So, you know, you could say it's old, mm-hmm. but you could also say 
has anything really changed. Mm -hmm. But what he found was almost an inverse, direct inverse correlation between technology in the classroom, meaning computers, mostly smart boards, tablets, whatever, and basic skills, Mm -hmm. meaning reading, writing, and arithmetic. Mm -hmm. In the low-tech or zero-tech schools, he found the highest levels of basic skills. Now, it's it's hard. You have to be careful you're not comparing apples and oranges proverbially here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because when you look at a low-tech school like a, a Waldorf, mm-hmm. even if it's a charter school, a Waldorf charter school, um, it is a public school. But the level of parental involvement mm-hmm. is going to be much, much, much higher. But it was it was fascinating. The, the best example he had was a location that was in the essentially the same part of the city. It was two schools, two charter schools that had been established at approximately the same time. And one was a, you know, a high-tech STEM charter school. Mm -hmm. The other was a Waldorf zero-tech charter Mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, you know, it's unquestionable. The computers do not help children learn to read or write or do arithmetic. Especially, and that's more and more true at the younger grades. Obviously, when you get into higher level function, you know, at a high school level, then you know the assistance of technology for writing and proofreading and understanding grammar and storing and organizing information, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as well as the need for calculators and higher math. Mm-hmm. But I think he made a very compelling argument. I think it's still very valid today that. We cannot look to technology in the classroom as the solution to the problems we would like to fix with basic skills and test scores and all of that. Right. Well, and the the topic of this podcast is when is technology appropriate? When is it when does it contribute to their learning in a positive way? Because you and I have had many conversations about technology over the years in these podcasts, most notably when we had a three- or four-part conversation on paper and pen, what the research says. And you spend quite a bit of time there talking about exactly what you just mentioned right, right now. Right. And we've also talked about the need for the younger kids just to have a screen-free environment, especially in their formative years. Mm-hmm. But when... When is it appropriate? When is it helpful? Well, I guess you have to define technology. I mm-hmm. mean, I've told the story of uh, the Egyptian king and the god Thoth, yeah. or Thoth, or Thuth, however you pronounce it. So tell that story. And, you know, he he basically said to the king, I am the maker of all good things, and I give you the gift of writing. And the king said, well, you know, that's well and good, but it will gradually erode or weaken the faculty of memory. So when we think about technology, we tend to think of what's the newest kind of app or device or, you know, site that we can use to accomplish what we want. But there's always been technology. Mm -hmm. So writing replaced memory, you know, pencils replaced quills, Mm -hmm. well, We'll, we'll say pens replace styluses and pencils and modern pens replaced quills mm-hmm. and then typewriters 
uh, didn't necessarily replace pens, but certainly opened up a whole new avenue right. of technology. And then with word processing that came to exist, you know, around the 80s and 90s, that was continued. And now, of course, the sky's the limit. You, you can't even say what the current technology is because it'll be surpassed in a short time and then your podcast is outdated. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Yep. So I think of these, you know, of course, like you, I have young grandchildren. And I think of the culture that they're growing up in. And there's so many apps now that are geared toward them to, you know, to assist with learning their letters and sounds and numbers and counting. And it's just a fun little game. Is that a negative thing? Or, I mean, this is not necessarily replacing the pen and paper, but it's just like an enhancement. Well, I think that's the key. Mm-hmm. If if we look at the educational apps created for children, of which almost all, if not all, are game-like, mm-hmm. and, and we say, what is the role of that? I think we would be it would be dangerous to say we're going to use that to teach basic skills mm-hmm. we're going to expect the app to teach the kid to read and teach her to do you know learn her math facts and somehow get them writing now there are apps i believe that would like to sell you on the idea that they can do that i haven't seen that and i know there's a lot of parents and children and teachers who've experienced being so distracted with the technology itself, they lose the time that it would take to just do basic mm-hmm. direct instruction the way people did 50, 100, 150, 200, 2,000 years ago. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Now, we get into this world of writing, and that's where we live most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we should focus on debating about teaching reading at mm-hmm. this moment, mm-hmm. but we're more about writing, and that's where the bigger question comes, is my child fill in the blank, right? Mm-hmm. So can I let him fill in the blank? So the most typical fill in the blanks would be, my child is extremely dysgraphic, so can I let him dictate the story to me and I write it down for him? The answer is yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Why, why wouldn't you? Right. Uh, and we've talked about you know the value and the integration of the speaking and writing as a function. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you would move one step and say, well, you know, my child is very, very dysgraphic. He can't put anything on paper. He's now a teenager. Can I let him dictate to the computer? Mm-hmm. And we've got from our incredible voice recognition on our iPhones to Siri. It's very, very reasonable, especially if you activate the, you know, the special functions in your system to help. There's a term for that, those apps that help people who mm-hmm. have generally motor sensory handicaps. Mm-hmm. And you can activate those and then it's even more because there are people who physically cannot possibly even type keys. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. So they talk. Mm-hmm. So, so it's interesting. We, we moved from very much a print culture to a much more verbal culture with television and telephones and everything. And then we moved really back into a print culture with the explosion of 
blogs and websites and news sites and emails and junk emails and and we're just constantly flooded with with text and so a lot of people are very busy creating content to go right with all of that text that's getting you know spewed out ubiquitously everywhere mm-hmm. but in a way we may move back to a verbal where people say I don't want to read it just computer tell me what it says mm-hmm. you know right. read the text to me I don't want to write. I don't want to type. I'll just talk, and that'll go to someone else, and that person might then decode the the text you talked into, so they can listen to it rather than have to read it. I don't even know. There may be professors out there who just have the computer read the papers, or I doubt it. But mm-hmm. you never know. Mm-hmm. So it's funny this fluid nature between speaking and writing. Uh, is even more, you know, the the differential between the two is is less today mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. ever before. Sure. So, you know, when you look at adaptive technology, you would say, yeah, absolutely. You know, if a child has a case of dyslexia or dysgraphia that make it overwhelmingly burdensome for him to work on decoding and encoding, why wouldn't you help that? The same way you would assist a child who was a quadriplegic or, mm-hmm. you know, had no ability to use their mouth or their hands. Mm-hmm. But there are people who've written whole books, even though they can't type or talk. Right. So, you know, we, we have to, I think, look at it very flexibly. There is another side to it, though. Okay. I've been waiting to hear where this was going to go. <laughs> well, the other side is reflecting on the king of Egypt and what he said to yeah. the god Thuth, Thoth, Thith, whatever, um, <laughs> He said, you know, this is good, but we will lose our memory. We won't have real learning. We'll just have the appearance of learning. Hmm. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here because sure. I don't remember the exact quote. This story, by the way, can be found in, in Plato in one of the dialogues. Well, I absolutely do not know what it is, but I will let our listeners know there will be a link in the yeah, show notes we, to this story. It's in one of the dialogues. And so that King in that fable, you know, notice that. We need to stand in the same point and notice. If we move into utilizing this level of technology, we may lose Mm -hmm. something distinctly human, something actually useful, something that allows us greater opportunity, you know, particularly intellectually. So we want to be sure and balance. I'll give you an example that I think everyone has noticed in the last several decades, and that is it is increasingly difficult for children, whether they are in public schools, private schools, hybrid schools, or homeschool, it is increasingly difficult for them to learn basic math facts. It is increasingly difficult for them to do mental math of any sort. Um, I've noticed this because I travel around and do some workshops and there's one little thing I do for high schoolers, which is, you know, do this division problem here, right? 1,000 divided by 140. It's pretty much always the same problem. And you get one out of 20 kids who can even think about how to do that problem mentally. Mm -hmm. The rest are like, well, I need a calculator. Where's my phone? I couldn't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sad because I think if you looked 100 years ago, Probably any sixth grader could have given a pretty good approximation on that because that was 
just normal. So as we as we equip children with technology like calculators and allow that to be used at a younger age or increasingly younger ages, then what we find is that children don't look at numbers and see relationships. Mm, sure. They don't look at 12 and immediately kind of think 9 plus 3, 10 plus 2, 8 plus 4. They don't look at 42 and immediately think 6 and 7, 6 times 7. They, they don't think mathematically mm-hmm. because they haven't had the mental practice, mm-hmm. just like learning a language. You have to gain fluency, which is speed and confidence and competence, in math as well, mm-hmm. in English composition mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, how do, we, how do we walk that line and say, okay, this, let's just say no to this technology until a certain point? Right. You know, if we look at the world of writing, are there some people who would say, yes, it would be very, very good for all children to leave, say, elementary school with an ability to write on paper quickly, fairly accurately, confidently, naturally? And yet, if we bring, you know, tablets and keyboards all the way down into grade one and two, are we going to also be able, in the busy schedule of curriculum and everything you have to do, you know, to, to gain those basic skills? I think in the home, what you generally see is, you know, kids can do work on paper, and then they can have recreation, if you will. Screen time. Screen time, mm-hmm. learning to use the technology. We don't need necessarily to make using the technology a part of curriculum so that it displaces mm-hmm. the time used for developing basic skills. Because I think almost every parent would say, yeah, I would like my child to have the ability to write on paper 10 years from now. Right. So if if that's what you want, Okay, you're gonna have, you may have to plan for it because the technology will just keep moving and, in a way, being more and more invasive. But uh, getting back to Oppenheimer's book, his closing statement, I thought, was really the the culmination of the logic and the and the reason, along with the common sense and experience. And that is, he said, technology amplifies whatever you have. Mm. So if you have an organized, efficient, focused, productive individual and you equip them with the best technology available, they will actually become more productive, mm-hmm. more organized, more efficient because we know, you know, one person, you know, especially when you get into the world of correspondence or bookkeeping, one person can do the work that 20 people once had to do, sure. you know, in a business. But on the flip side, if you, if you give a disorganized, unfocused, inefficient person more technology, it tends to make them more disorganized, mm-hmm. more distracted, more inefficient. And then he leaves the reader with the question, what's your average 10-year-old like? Yeah, exactly. You know, are, are they naturally organized, efficient, productive, focused, or are they naturally different and you have to work to build those qualities? Yeah, because being organized is a skill that is teachable. Absolutely. Well, look at all of the time management and life planning mm-hmm. and, you know, methods people have come up 
to with checklists and, right you know all that's well and good and you know i think very valuable and important to mm-hmm. teach kids those basic study skills if you will but if you don't teach it i think the problem and what we we all would like is for something to do that for me mm-hmm. right I, I just want to buy something that will teach my kid that when maybe what you really need to do is that you know personal mentoring mm-hmm. and then see how you can use the technology model that technology and say this is how we can use spreadsheets this is how we can use you know a spell checker and a grammar checker that's how we can but if you just leave the kid to discover it all uh, he may he may get very distracted flounder about a bit yes i think of our our writing classes our structure and style for students. I know I always circle back to that, but every class we spend a few minutes at the end of class where the kids organize their binders. So we're trying to teach them right at the beginning, be organized because you might need to refer to this paper again and you need to know where to find it. And I would love to think that perhaps a student will transfer that into other areas of light, not life, not just their writing class. Sure. Well, you know, it's it's everything. It's sure spatial organization. I bet people who have a fairly neat space in terms of, say, their desk or workplace mm-hmm. also have a fairly organized desktop on their computer. <laughs> and I'll bet the opposite may be true, too, in many cases, not all. Uh, so how do you teach organization? Mm-hmm. Because technology will amplify whatever you teach. Right. Right. If you teach kids how to research on paper, right, like our unit six, and mm-hmm. we've seen this, mm-hmm. then you make the shift and say, okay, here's how you can do that same thing by accessing information on the internet, but you've built a pathway. You just throw kids and say, go Google stuff, and what level of research happens here? Right. Um, They're probably going to find articles that are other articles that are based on other articles that, yeah, it's just, it's all the same article on that particular topic that you can, you can find a hundred places. And, and a lot of, a lot of kids might not have even basic sense of how to judge validity mm-hmm. or veracity. Uh, and that's one of the things, you know, that I have taught in various mm-hmm. classes. Is, well, and just going back to you know, my example and your example of Unit 6, you ask the students, what's the advantage of having multiple sources? That's what our Unit 6 is. It's the research project where they're using multiple sources. And oftentimes the kids will say, it demonstrates, they don't may not say these words, but it does demonstrate veracity. Right. But if they happen to find that same article, yeah. 20 different places, that doesn't necessarily mean veracity. It means someone's copying and pasting. Yeah, and that that happens a lot and mm-hmm. yeah, I've I've even got into that thinking, whoa, another article that supports right. And oh, that's the same right source, but we we look at the fact that technology is increasing more rapidly than mm-hmm. really we can imagine. Right. I don't think anyone our age 20 years ago could have imagined the way things are now. And we have become accustomed to you know, taking them all for granted, but we still have the memory of doing without. 
That is very true, Andrew. As we were having this conversation, I was remembering my ninth grade physical science class. And guess what we did at the beginning of every class? We had a slide rule quiz. A slide rule? A slide rule quiz where our instructor wanted us to do basic calculations uh-huh. using our slide, slide rule. That year which I believe was, okay, 1974, Uh at the end of that year, he stopped doing them because calculators were becoming so popular (laughs) that people, you know, he gave us a choice, slide rule or calculator. Well, duh. Yeah. I'm going to use a calculator because I can't figure out the slide rule. No, anyway. Well, the thing about the slide rule is, and I don't use it well, but my father was an Mm -hmm. engineer in the the 50s, 60s, so that they sent people's space with slide rules. But, you know, you still have to think mathematically. Mm -hmm. You can't just mindlessly punch in numbers and look at an answer and assume that it's right. Exactly. And that is what we find a lot of times is kids will put down answers that don't even make sense Mm -hmm. because they didn't have a mathematical concept that would give them an expectation by which to judge, did they push the buttons correctly? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. So... Yeah, so we we don't know, you know, what will the next 10 years hold? What will mm-hmm. the next 20 hold? I mean, you kind of always think, gosh, how can anything go further than it is? Right. But then people thought that 100 years ago. Or even five years ago when you wrote your article, we didn't believe that it was, well, I'm sure you did. Who, who knows? So it's definitely an, an area to navigate, but I do... Uh, I do highly recommend Opplinger's book. Mm-hmm. And um, there's another book I'll mention. I just finished reading it. Mm. Uh, I think I mentioned it to you. It's by uh, Daniel Willingham. It's called, I think, When Can You Trust the Experts? Mm. And I, I thought, this is such an important book because it gives you very concrete advice as to how to look at research and not just assume that everything you see is absolute or even correct because so many things have either been non-replicated or disproven mm-hmm. and yet they're still used in quote. And he had lots of fascinating examples. And his book is particularly focusing on research pertaining to education mm-hmm. and education policy right? because what we often see is people will get – some idea, whether it's look-say method of teaching reading Mm -hmm. or whether it's learning styles or whether it's technology-related, and they'll say, let's make this big change. And there's no research at all as to whether this change would be good. And, you know, that seems to be something we've seen in education is these big changes without any strong support for the idea that this is a good change. Right. And in some cases, we've had bad changes because we've seen basic skills like reading decline and then rise and decline. So somebody's changing something to make the declines. Right, right, right. And it's just gratifying to know that what we are doing here at the Institute for Excellence in Writing, even though our company itself is 25 years old, a little bit more now, Um, It's based on a methodology that goes way back with Dr. Webster in in Canada, and he actually put together the pieces based on other 
type of information and methodology that goes all the way back to the pro-gymnast Ancient model. times. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, so here we are. So pen and paper, you know, we don't have too many apps for students anyway. We have a few for the parents, the checklist generator, well, we ha- that we kind also of thing. Ha- we have the Word Right Now in app form. Right. That's and a great that's reference. that's a great tool. Mm-hmm. That, that is an example of really useful technology. Right, right. It's limited in scope. It's not a game. Mm-hmm. It's a reference. And you can find stuff quickly. Right. You could also just buy the book. Or you could buy the book. <laughs> and we have it both. So, well, thank yeah, you. I, I'm just curious. Do you still own a set of encyclopedias? I do not. Do um, you? Somewhere. Yes, and what of your They're boxes? I've box. <laughs> <laughs> been moving around and re- reorganizing books. But, you know, I look back very fondly. Mm-hmm. On the paper encyclopedia, I spent countless hours as a child Mm -hmm. surfing, if you will. Yes, yes. The encyclopedia, and it worked in a much broader way than internet surfing Mm -hmm. because – and I think Martin Cawthorn said it well. He wrote an article called In Praise of Accidental Knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, you stumble into something. You wouldn't have ever been looking for it, and you're like, well, that's just fascinating. And it happened to be right next to the thing I actually was looking for. Right. So I would encourage, you know, parents, if you can get your hands on a, an old set, a pre-electronic mm-hmm. paper set of encyclopedias, mm-hmm. and just have it in the house while your kids are growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, they may, they may or may not use it, but you can use it. You can show them how to use it. Yep. And then you can, you know, when the lights go out, there's something to read. There you go. There you go. Of course, if the lights are out. thank you Andrew this has been very helpful thank you Julie thanks so much for joining us if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes Google Play, or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Pudua and the team at IEW, I thank you for allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.